This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Class Struggle Unionism by Joe Burns. Class Struggle Unionism is the belief that our union struggle exists within a larger struggle between an exploiting billionaire class and the working class which actually produces the goods and services in society. Drawing on years of labor organizing and study of labor tradition, Joe Burns outlines the key set of ideas common to class struggle unionism and shows how these ideas can create a more militant, democratic, and fighting labor movement. As Sarah Nelson puts it, there is nothing more essential for the resurgence of the labor movement than cutting through the racial, social, gender, and political divisions driven by the corporate class to deny working class power and keep workers in competition with each other. Class struggle unionism not only defines the urgency of our common struggle, it's a textbook on how to organize around our common demands, right where we work, in order to build a movement strong enough to realize an inclusive economy and thriving democracy. That's Sarah Nelson. Find Class Struggle Unionism at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Class Struggle Unionism by Joe Burns. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In this house, we believe racial liberalism, or liberal anti-racism, of course, fails to challenge racism on the terms in which it is materially embedded in the political economy of racial capitalism. What's worse, it mystifies that materiality of racism and its function in reproducing the dominant political economic order by legitimating racialized class inequalities. In other words, racial liberalism is not just an insufficiently robust form of anti-racism, it is an actively damaging form of anti-racism that shores up systems of domination and oppression. And that's no surprise, given this form of anti-racism's affluent professional class origins and the neoliberal conditions that shape dominant ideologies. Today, my guest is political scientist Jared Clemens, the author of a really stellar new article in the journal Perspectives on Politics, From Freedom Now to Black Lives Matter, Retrieving King and Randolph to Theorize Contemporary White Anti-Racism. I have linked to a PDF of Jared's article in the show notes. It is just 12 pages long, and you should definitely give it a read. And I'll read from Jared's abstract here just to give you a sense of what we'll be discussing. Quote, Many were taken aback by the initial spike in support for Black Lives Matter among white Americans during the summer of 2020. But will these anti-racist attitudes translate into anti-racist behavior? Accordingly, I ask under what conditions do white Americans engage in anti-racist behavior? To answer this question, I build upon the insights of Martin Luther King Jr. and A. Philip Randolph to theorize contemporary white anti-racism. I argue that, under neoliberal capitalism, the conditions they laid out as necessary for the cultivation of productive anti-racist politics have been difficult to satisfy. 
in lieu of that, in many instances, has been the privatization of racial responsibility, which I coined to describe a form of anti-racist politics that relies upon white individuals' sympathetic and often symbolic gestures rather than the implementation of more state programs to address structural racial injustices. I discuss what this development might mean for the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black freedom struggle writ large moving forward. Again, I have a link to a PDF of Jared's article in the show notes. Give it a read. If you listen to The Dig all the time and you can afford $5 a month, I implore you to take one moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. A lot of work goes into every show, something you've probably gathered. The reason we can put this out for free to everyone every week so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay is that those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We really do appreciate it. I get an email notifying me every time there's a new Patreon supporter, and it warms my heart that you all are contributing to keep the show up and running. What's more, a contribution of any amount at all gets you our weekly newsletter sent to you by email. The newsletters are really very good, and you can check them all out for free at thedigradio.com. But if you can afford, say, $5 a month or so, it is a pretty good deal to get it delivered to you conveniently by email. Make a contribution of at least $10 a month, and we will send you a great book in the mail, or a dig tote bag, or dig mug. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We really do appreciate your support. If you want to hear more on racial liberalism and related topics, please check out my interviews with Femi Taiwo and with Barbara and Karen Fields. In fact, I'll be reposting Femi's interview from December 2020 next week. And you can find all of our archives at thedigradio.com. The Dig is now on summer schedule, which means that from here on out through August, we're only doing a new interview about once every two weeks or so. So some weeks we will post an episode from our archives, and other weeks perhaps we will not be posting anything. But it is unlikely you have run out of new Dig content to listen to because our archives are vast indeed and available at thedigradio.com where all of the hundreds of interviews we've done are organized by guest and by topic. Also, if you enjoyed last week's interview with Know Your Enemies, Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, you should check out my February 2021 interview with them on conservative intelligentsia. I meant to post a link in the show notes last week, forgot to do so, so I have posted a link in the show notes of this episode. Okay. Here's Jared Clemens, who received his Ph.D. in political science from Duke University, where he studied black politics, black political thought, anti-racism, and political economy. He is an incoming research fellow at Princeton University's Center for the Study of Democratic Politics, and next year will start as a professor of political science at Temple University. Jared Clemens, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Before we get into a lot of detail, let's cover your basic argument. How have certain forms of anti-racist politics dependent upon the allyship of white members of the professional managerial class, or PMC, curbed the power of today's black freedom and anti-racist movements amid a proliferation of, in this house, we believe, in Black Lives Matter, lawn signs, 
across affluent liberal neighborhoods. What, in other words, is this form of racial liberalism that you describe as PMC anti-racism, and how does it manage to leave actually oppressive structures of racial capitalism firmly in place? When I started working in this paper, I kind of wanted to figure out a way to couch this manifestation of all of these in these house we believe in and, and Black Lives Matter signs in political and social and historical context. And so what I wanted to really think about was, um, so there's been a good deal of work that's thought about the way that neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism interacts with racism. But in my view, there wasn't quite as much emphasis on thinking about how it interacts with anti-racism, which I think there's generally a dearth of good social scientific research on theorizing, empirically assessing anti-racism. And so that's really what I wanted to try to get at. And so most of your listeners are going to be pretty well rehearsed on most of the things that are kind of characteristic about neoliberalism, hyper-individualization, atomization, um, alienation, all those other things. And so I wanted to really take a step back and think about, you know, what about these characteristics of neoliberalism either constrain or how do they condition what we understand to be anti-racism into today? And so what I wanted to, and so what I ultimately landed on was that really so much of these in these house we believe in are these more symbolic gestures are kind of a reflection of how politics generally have been winnowed to these very symbolic acts Perhaps the most, uh, the funniest um, illustration of this is thinking about when Nancy Pelosi and some of her coterie all did the kneeling in the, in the, in the Capitol with the, with the kente cloth and, and all of these other things. And so I was kind of writing in the, as all of that was happening. And um, I just really wanted to, you know, think about, you know, how is neoliberalism, you know, affecting even areas where we wouldn't, we wouldn't immediately think about, in this case, anti-racism, or what we think about is um, attacking or trying to address uh, structural racial inequality. So that was kind of the impetus behind it. And I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit further. But one thing I think is somewhat troubling is the way in which, you know, this move towards this individualization of anti-racism, moving away from organizing and creating the types of, of coalitional politics that, you know, thinkers in the mid 20th century. So in the paper that um, we'll talk about more, I really lean on some of the work of, of MLK and A. Philip Randolph is a figure that I don't think quite gets his due. But they all understood that, you know, addressing racial capitalism, although they never used that terminology, they understood that that required the types of organization of, on a mass scale. And you couldn't just depend on you know, kind of the individual goodwill of individuals, to, the, in, the goodwill of individuals to to address what they saw as these structural inequalities. And so I wanted to think about this in a more social scientific way rather than just pinning a polemic, which probably would have been a little bit more fun, but I wanted to think of something, you know, perhaps a bit more productive um, moving forward. During the summer of 2020, people were quick to note that so many white people were participating in the protests. And the prevailing idea was really that these white people were good allies, fighting not for their own interests, but for those of oppressed black people. In this framing, the notion was that they were engaged in an act of charitable self-sacrifice motivated by principle above all else. But I don't think that's actually what happened. I think that many white people were, in fact, 
in the streets for reasons emerging from their own experiences, whether those be bleak economic conditions or the government presiding over a mass death event of a barely checked pandemic or the radicalizing moment of the Bernie campaign. And we we could go on enumerating factors that might have played a role. How did the dominant ideology of today's racial liberalism circumscribe white people's understanding of their own participation as one limited to allyship rather than a more expansive solidarity? And what were the consequences of that? I think you really put your finger on something because when we think about what was going on in May and June of 2020, obviously people were cooped up in their homes. Many people, if you remember, at that time we had record unemployment. I mean, unemployment was, I don't remember the exact figures, but they were unprecedented in, in American history. And so you have tons of people who are not working, cooped up. The federal government is pretty much throwing pennies to most people, unless you were a Wall Street executive at this point. And so, you know, I think you're right. I think part of what we saw was not just a reaction to George Floyd's police murder, although I think that that may have been, um, let's say, the catalyst for some of that that mobilization. But it really was a lost moment in a lot of ways, because rather than articulate, even if we think about the George Floyd situation, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but there was an op-ed that the mayor of, well, the former mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges, pinned in the New York Times a few weeks after the um, kind of these mass protests that erupted. And rather than using this to call attention to the mass inequalities that people across the board, I mean, particularly Black people, but not exclusively, and you've had so many people on your show that have really tried to emphasize, I'm thinking about the Field Sisters and, and others who really tried to emphasize, you know, part of, 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 of attacking structural racial inequalities means attacking the kind of the, the, the general structure of the capitalist economy. And so after what we saw in, in May and in June of 2020, you know, in, in response to the, and to, to George, to George Floyd, but also, you know, other episodes as well, there really wasn't much engagement about the real structural conditions that people were facing. And so rather than having a moment where we could use this as a as an illustration to say that, look, this is happening to black people, but not exclusively. This is there are deep seated structural issues that people of all stripes, irrespective of their racial status, should be concerned about. But it quickly devolved into what can we do for you know, to address racial disparities or what can we do to make sure that there are more black people on the board of Goldman Sachs or what can we do to make sure that um, you know, JP Morgan famously had this, there was a really good piece about this in, in Jacobin talking about, I think it was by um, Cedric um, Johnson. And he talks about how it took no time for these huge corporations to swoop in and use this moment to, to, um, to turn this into a, a diversity and inclusion thing. And, and, and so what happens is that it, it, it completely divorces any of the, the, um, the structural inequalities from political economy. And so, but that has been so part and parcel of racial liberalism, like racial liberal, liberalism takes capitalism for granted and makes this case that really what we need is to make sure that, you know, there's enough people with seats at the table who look different and, you know, making sure that we have diverse boards and diverse insert whatever board here. And, you know, that's not going to get us where we need to be if we're thinking about an actual politics that can do something to address these these structural racial inequalities. And so I do think that there was a moment that was was lost there. And, 
you know, part of it is a, is a reflection of where our politics are right now. I mean, again, like, I think we can't underestimate this, you know, how much this feeling of alienation shapes the way that people um, participate in politics. And so one thing that I think we also saw was just people wanting to be a part of something with other people, even if it wasn't uh, in response to George Floyd. Maybe it was a response to living in a community that is um, blighted or abandoned or, or what have you. And so I do wish that there was a way for our discourse to really couch all of that in a, in a grounded material understanding of, you know, the conditions that people face. But, you know, we, we have all of the issues that we face, the corporately run media and, you know, elite capture and all of those other things that so many other people in your show have done a great job of, of underscoring. And so um, in a lot of ways, I think what we saw was very reminiscent of uh, kind of the, uh, the that idea of racial liberalism and, and kind of its limitations. It, it makes sense that the extreme and spectacular police violence perpetrated against black people would, would touch such a nerve far beyond black America that it would strike a powerful chord in a, in a society where the very disposability that's legitimated by racism and disproportionate hyper-exploitation and vulnerability to death, that that disposability is becoming ever more generalized. But what's unfortunate is that the prevailing ideology says that it's wrong to make those connections. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it, I mean, there's so many people who have done great work really critiquing this kind of disparitarian ideology. And so it is important to recognize, you know, how racism interacts with specific forms of political economy. So if we're thinking about capitalist accumulation, you know, why is it that Black people are disproportionately likely to be in prison? I think these are important questions that I think you have to reckon with and theorize. It's not by accident. But if you don't move beyond just the who's being harmed the most towards why do we have systems of harm in the first place, then I think you kind of miss the forest for the trees. And so racial, it's really unfortunate that, you know, we can't have this discourse that really emphasizes the fact that we have so many institutions, so many systems that, you know, they, they grind people to dust. And, you know, in some circumstances, there might be, you might be able to avoid the worst of it. It doesn't discriminate solely based on one's racial status. There's other things that are at play. Um, and so I just think that the overemphasis or the over-reliance, I should say, on just looking at the, the racial aspect of it without engaging with political economy really rids us of a lot of, of the tools to really think about some of these things in a more in a more nuanced and complex way. And if we don't do that work, then it becomes next to impossible to devise some type of strategy to actually undo or to dismantle some of these um, these systems that, that do so much harm. And so if you only focus on the who's being harmed the most part of the equation, then you could reasonably say that as long as there is no disproportionate harm, then we should be okay. But I don't think that anybody, especially if you're committed to left politics, I don't think anybody should be satisfied with that. It should be using that to identify perhaps where the, the, the how the logic is working and then from there tweak or, or change it for the hopefully for the better. In some cases, some institutions just need to be done away with. Um, but I do think that that it leaves us somewhat... Um, it, it leaves us with our hands tied a lot of times. And so I, I, I try to think of ways in my work to really 
think about the very specifics of political economy in a way um, so that we can hopefully think about points of entry of changing or fixing or, 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 or eradicating. And so, you know, my pie in the sky idea, I'm so I'm a very optimistic person. I don't know if that's, that's a good thing, um, but, you know, I do believe that people want to do well. I think people want to see a more egalitarian order and a more egalitarian world. It's just people have to have the tools to be able to analyze what they're seeing in a way that actually allows them to be able to do something about that. And that's not to say that disproportionality is not real and important, but what's necessary is to understand the function that this disproportionality has in terms of reproducing the political economic order. Racism, as as Ruth Wilson Gilmore writes, is a changing same. So it's protean, but it also has a consistent function under capitalism. Exactly. And, and yeah, and I, and I quote her in the paper, essentially saying just that. And she, she has this really great quote that the, from Golden Gulag, where she says, if the order is changed, then so are, so are the causes. And so you have to really understand how political economy works to really understand how racism is, re, or is helping to reproduce these inequalities that we want to see. And it, without that, if you just divorce or you just look at, a, at racial inequality as this kind of constant over time without thinking about, uh, which it is, but if you don't think about, you know, what is characteristic about 2022 um, and then what is characteristic about, say, 1963, that then require a different set of solutions or a different set of action items to address. And you can't, there's no blueprint. You have to be attuned to the world around you. And, and so part of what I do in my work, or I try to do anyway, is really think about, you know, where are some of these racial disparities the most pronounced? And, you know, why? What is what is the logic at play here? And I'm of the belief that racial inequality or racism is can't be understood without an, an accounting of political economy. I mean, that's a pretty standard Marxist one-on-one idea, I would say. But I also think the same for anti-racism. I don't think you can really think about how we might combat racial inequalities without also thinking about what are the, the characteristics about the capitalist economy at the time of analysis that are creating and reinscribing those inequalities. Yeah, on that note, you write, quote, that any account of anti-racist behavior is incomplete without an analysis of the political economic circumstances under which individuals operate. Accordingly, I introduce my theory of white anti-racism, the privatization of racial responsibility, that, quote, white individuals who harbor anti-racist principles will likely engage in anti-racist behavior to the extent that does not impinge upon the attainment of those forms of capital, monetary, human, social, or otherwise, that they perceive as being necessary for survival. How does neoliberalism as a particular moment in capitalism privatize racial responsibility? And then how does that privatized racial responsibility limit the possibility of meaningful anti-racist action among white PMCs and also perhaps among people more generally, given that dominant ideologies under capitalism tend to trickle down? Yeah, it's a great question. So first, I would say that I don't so I'm theorizing white anti-racism, but one question I've gotten often is, why, is this only something that's exclusive to, to white people? And, you know, I'm not a race, a race essentialist, so I don't necessarily think it is. But I do think that you're thinking about uh, part of what I wanted to do was respond to some of this discourse about white anti-racism and try to couch that in a, in a more uh, theoretically grounded um, account. 
And so in thinking about this theory, it's important to think about timing. And so I'm a political scientist and um, what there's a good deal of work in political science, not just political science, but also sociology, also psychology that seeks to explain this phenomenon that's often referred to in the literature as the, the principal policy gap. So the idea here is that, and it's also really important to think about the historiography or the, the lineage of this research, because I think it helps to explain why it's such a, a predominant research agenda in, in the social sciences. So coming out of the, the, the high watermark of the modern civil rights movement, so I'm thinking of, you know, after the passage of um, the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and even the Fair Housing Act in 68, what we saw, especially in survey research, is that many white Americans' so-called racial attitudes. And so in, in the political science, we have this, this huge survey called the American National Election Survey, which is run every four years. And it, I believe it started around 19, late 40s or so, but really became popularized in the early 60s. And so there are a number of questions which are asked repeatedly on each survey. So you can get um, a, a time series. So we can look and we can see how attitudes have changed over time. So there are questions in that American National Election Survey, which asks, for instance, or which asked white respondents, how much would you be OK with your kid or with your child marrying a black person? And so in the, in the 1940s, you, unsurprisingly, there were a, a, a large number of white people who were absolutely like, I can't stomach that. Like, it's not going to happen. They ask questions about how comfortable are you with um, sending your kid to schools with, with Black kids. And again, as you could expect, that in the 1940s, there were a number of white people who were like, absolutely not. But what we saw by the mid-1960s is that on these questions about racial attitudes, we started to see an improvement among not just white um, liberals, but whites across, white people across the board. And so on the question of how comfortable are you with your child marrying a, a Black person, the question became so, like, no one was answering that question with a, with a no. It's, so they eventually discontinued the question because pretty much everyone was like, it, it was so overtly racist that no one was going to answer that unless you were, you know, like far right people. So, but what they, what researchers found was that eventually those attitudes weren't being predicted, weren't predictive of support for certain anti-racist policies or policies that we would expect to be anti-racist. So their, their racial attitudes were improving in a number of dimensions, but if you ask them whether or not they supported busing, it was like, uh, absolutely not. So the attitudes were improving, but support for the policies weren't. And so that's where you get this principal policy gap, this juncture. Now to explain that, um, researchers started to look at how racial attitudes were being measured. And so the idea here was that, well, if the attitudes aren't predicting the behavior, then the issue is we're not measuring the attitudes right. So if we just really figure out the way to get at what where the racism really is, then we'll be able to explain this disjuncture. And so most of the 70s and the 80s and really into the 90s as this research became so much more um, technical, was all about the measurement of attitudes. And it's presumed in this, the, the presumption underlying all of this research is that in normal conditions, principles and behaviors would, would be aligned. 
Exactly. And so if it isn't, there's a gap there that needs to be explained. And that's quite a presumption to make. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But part of the reason they can make that presumption is because, again, racial all of this literature is born out of this racial liberal paradigm. And so they all take capitalism for granted. So there's no mention hardly at all of political economy. And so that's one line of research that I wanted to really engage with. And much of that research really looks at inequality specifically in schooling and housing, because those are the two where we've seen the most durable inequalities since the the passage of this of, of this of the legislation in the 1960s. And so what I wanted to do was say, okay, well, there are a number of people in this country who have quote unquote positive racial attitudes. And again, we know that there are a number of people who those attitudes aren't necessarily predictive of support for, let's say, um, more affordable housing because people associate affordable housing with Black people and then, you know, how that goes. And so what I wanted to do is say, well, let's look at the what's gone on since 1965. Um, why is it that, you know, we haven't seen these attitudes translate into support for the policies that would address some of these structural racial inequalities. And, you know, some people will say it's the racial backlash and and things like that, which I do think that there was a strong racial backlash. But I wanted to make the assumption that let's assume that people actually want to do something, because I I do think that a lot of people want to do something. But what they're being asked to do now, especially within the context of, let's say, housing or schooling, is essentially you're being asked to make a sacrifice, in this case, your child's education or your property, your your owning your home or making sure that your asset is not secure. You're expected to give that up or at least make some type of sacrifice so that more people can have a slice of that pie. Now, there might be some people who are willing to do that, but I don't think that most people are. And I think part of the reason that that isn't the, that most people aren't willing to sacrifice those things is because if we look at what education and what housing in particular have been over the last half century or so, they have been, in effect, a replacement of the social welfare state. And so if you look at housing, like Part of the the impetus behind this thrust for home ownership, especially into the in the late nineties, under the like the Clinton administration was very explicit about this. Like home ownership was a way that people could then essentially be responsible for their own social and financial well being, and then that could then let the you know the, the state off the hook for having to invest in these in these social programs. And I think it's no accident that this is also happening at the time that the Clinton administration is you know, really attacking the social welfare state and through the ending welfare as we know it. And so we think about how then housing becomes even more paramount when we have a social order in which social provisions are so limited, so weak. Um, and if we also think about schooling, I mean, schooling is kind of the same thing. Like the way that the whole human capital idea of education emerged was largely as a way to to get people more skin in the game. And so if people had their education, their credentials, then we wouldn't necessarily have to, you know, the, we being the state doesn't have to take on the responsibility or the risks associated with a capitalist market economy, because then people can just get more education and, and that credential can be their their protection, so to speak. Yeah, the dominant ideology under neo- neoliberalism holds out that entrepreneurial self-improvement and enrichment is the only way forward. And education is a, is framed primarily as a tool to make that happen through, through economic mobility. Exactly. And then that is then embedded 
the segregated unequal public education system is then embedded in the segregated and unequal housing system. So it's kind of a a nexus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, kind of the thing with 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 racial liberalism. And so I was listening to your interview with um, Lily Geisberg, and she, you know, she makes a great point. Like, really, what that was all about was incorporating more black people into a market economy that was already fundamentally unequal. First and foremost, markets are meant to produce inequality, not equality. So even if you just put a set aside the racial implications of it, like market economies are not structured to make sure that everyone can have access to whatever is being traded in the market. It's supposed to be the people who have the the, the, the means to do to, to get whatever good or commodity is being exchanged. And so we just incorporate black people into that, whether that's the housing market or the that schooling market or education market, which sounds kind of weird to even call it that, but that's how it functions. Then it's not a surprise that people let's take it, bring it back to, to, to white liberals, it's not a surprise that there is a very real conundrum that arises. You are either having to ultimately decide whether you're going to forego some of that, those commodities, the educational commodity, the housing commodity, for the sake of doing something about racial justice, or you have to figure out another expression of anti-racism. And so I think part of the reason we end up with some of these more symbolic gestures is because it's a way to square that circle. It's a way for people to do something or to express their commitment to racial egalitarianism without necessarily impinging on um, those material goods that we just discussed. I mean, if you could actually get data on the geography of the prevalence of this signage in front lawns and run that against housing values, I think we all know what it, that might. <laughs> That's actually really good. You gave me a really good research idea. <laughs> Look like you might need like Google image search. I don't know if it's possible. The data might not exist. But a- as I said in a recent episode, it's in this house, we believe in exclusionary zoning in private schools. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's essentially the moms do. <laughs> Is the PMC an internally coherent category? Because you argue I think convincingly, that it's it's hopeless to try to convince individual members of the PMC to act in accordance with their principles if they perceive those behaviors to be against their interests, but especially in this zero-sum context created by neoliberalism. But are there not only contradictions between PMC principle and practice, but also material contradictions internal to the PMC between its different sections that, that might be politically exploited? In In other words, While a portion of the PMC are these people I was just making fun of as securely affluent as ever, many others, including among academia's growing ranks of precarious adjuncts, many others are being proletarianized. They have sought out and trained for and expected prestigious professions. But unlike the affluent faction of the PMC, they find themselves unable to find secure, well-compensated, high-status employment or or even any gainful employment at all, let alone in their field. Yeah, I think that there is a, uh, I don't know if I would call it a contradiction, but I do think that there are some qualitatively different experiences about people that we might generally refer to as the PMC. So I mean, I work in academia, so I'm, I'm, this is kind of my class of people. So I interact too quite frequently with members of the, of the PMC. I guess I myself am a part of the PMC. Um, and so I do think on one hand, there is this kind of, so if we think about where the PM, where the PMC are often institutionally located. So we think about the academy, 
you think about um, corporate spaces um, or things like that, you know, part of what these institutions do is cultivate a certain expectation about where you are right now and what you can expect reasonably given your class position. And so um, part of what universities do is if you've ever been a university listserv, which I'm a many of them, they're often about, you know, career development or what can you do to make yourself more marketable on your LinkedIn or what can you do to like position yourself to have passive income. And so it kind of creates this environment of expectations that, you know, what might be hard to quantify in a lot of ways, if you think about what it's doing sociologically, it's setting a set of expectations about what education is and where you are kind of in the, in the, the in, within the, the hierarchy and what you should, what you should reasonably expect as either a member of this PMC or an, an emergent PMC um, individual. But what we know is that that bargain hasn't been hold that, you know, the university and other institutions have not held up the, the bargain for everyone. And so there are a number of folks who will not get that high paying job working at Goldman Sachs or at some tech firm, or they won't end up in a cushiony job in, uh, you know, as a tenure professor in the academy. They're often going to, you know, end up in, many people are going to end up in downwardly mobile or in, at least in positions that don't guarantee the type of social security that they had come to expect from engaging in the, the whole exercise of getting a, of higher education. And so the question then becomes then, you know, what to make of the people who are, you know, downwardly mobile or having to take, quote unquote, um, underemployment in order to, um, to make ends meet. And I would say that I do think that there is opportunity there to really radicalize people or to create the types of solidarity that we might hope. But one thing I would really try to keep my finger on or really think about is that going back to the expectation thing, you know, are people taking, you know, who are in the position of not necessarily getting the, the bargain they expected, are they, you know, taking a job at, with the expectation that it'd be temporary until they can get back into that PMC track of being able to get that that high paying job that they had come to expect? Or is it going to create a new set of, you know, of, of politicized individuals who don't necessarily view this kind of upwardly mobile hamster wheel that so many in my, my coterie kind of cling to or kind of subscribe to? And I think that's an empirical question. I don't think that um, we should discount the fact that we are seeing more and more college educated individuals who are among the so-called precariat. But I don't know if we should also overestimate what that should mean. I think we should keep a close eye on how it's developing and seeing, you know, what's going on. I think that's all, again, an empirical question. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. I, I, I feel like so far as yet, we do see the kind of frustrated, downwardly mobile, college-educated middle class, the, the, the would-be successful PMC. I think we've seen it be core to the Bernie phenomenon in many ways, core to DSA, and now also a part of, of this new labor militancy, whether whether as Starbucks workers, Amazon salts, or public school teachers and nurses, the latter being an interesting case because they are sort of professions themselves, teachers and nurses that are being, that are kind of always threatened with proletarianization. 
Yeah. And so even if you think about teachers and nurses as being a part of the PMC, if you read the original Ironreich works, like they even struggle a little bit to really classify where teachers sit because, you know, teachers in some in many locales or they're, you know, public sector workers, um, they're often paid awfully. Um, so I'm from southern Louisiana and I mean, you could, I mean, it may be different now, but at some point, the most you could make as a teacher in Louisiana, uh, in, my, in my hometown, with like 25 years of experience in a PhD was like $50,000. It's just like, no one is going to do that laborious work, you know, and have to endure the type of kind of the expectations that people have of, of teachers, which is, in my view, you're, I mean, you're expected to, to be a teacher, to be a counselor, to be a pretty much an extension of the family. It, it's just wild how much we expect the teachers. And so I do think that, okay, we're, you know, get really thinking about, these occupations and what people who occupy these roles, what their expectations of life are. And, and you know, this is something that you can't really put in a model. You can't even asking this in a survey, you just ask someone, you know, what is your expectation of life? Like I mean, people are gonna, that's not something you can get an easy, you know, bubble in one of the these four choices and get a good response. But I do think it's important to really think about how people understand the economy. What do they understand as you know, why do they perform some of these jobs? Like, what do they think that doing this work is going to afford them? And I do think that, you know, this is something that I think is really important if you're thinking about class, because class isn't just about how much someone makes. It's not just about what their um, their status. It's also about, it's a it creates a normative understanding of what your expectations are for the world and what your relationship is to the social contract. And so I think for a number of people, their understanding of that social contract, however implicit it might be, is one that they feel like they are getting screwed over. Like it's not being upheld. So the question that becomes like, are people going to view that breach of the social contract in and in, in view it as a, oh, well, Maybe this means we should reconsider what the social contract should be. Or is it going to be, I just want to make sure that the social contract that I was originally promised is able to be acknowledged. And I think those are two different, that, you know, that requires two different strategies. If you are just trying to retrieve something that you feel like you've lost or something that you are not being given something that you deserve. Versus if you're trying to build an entirely different world and create a new social contract predicated upon a different set of assumptions, I think that is going to lead to two different sets of behavior. And so on one hand, I think that where we are right now is really, really promising because I think you're seeing some of those rigid kind of class distinctions blur in ways that we probably haven't seen, at least not since the kind of the height of industrial uh, or manufacturing or Fordist capitalism, I should say. Um, and so I think it all, it opens a, a door for some really interesting politics. And so I'm, I'm just interested to see how things, um, anything I say at this point would be purely speculative, but I think that there are a lot of promising developments for sure. I think another way to phrase a dynamic that might be emerging is that there are certain college-educated Amazon salts, I imagine, whose parents have in this house, we believe, signs in their front lawns. Absolutely. So I'm really interested to see how they how do they navigate that situation. Yeah, it's interesting. You write, quote, to be sure, some scholars have argued that anti-racism has not been affected by neoliberal capitalism, but is a product of it. And here you're citing Adolf Reed. What <laughs> what what does he mean when he argues that anti-racism 
isn't deformed by neoliberalism, but is itself instead a creature of neoliberalism? And what and what do you think he gets right and wrong about the origins of of anti-racism, liberal anti-racism, and and how to surpass it? So Adolf Reed is, you know, he's a political historian, a historian of ideologies, as he often calls himself. And so and I think his work here is really instructive. And so Reed makes this case that if we think about the origins of some of the discourse around anti-racism today, so diversity and inclusion, we think about a seat at the table, we think about the whole Black faces in high places, he traces most of this to the early 1970s, where what we really see is Black politics becoming, in many ways, I, don't, I won't say fractured, but I think the class differences within Black America are starting to become a bit more pronounced. And so, you know, in many ways, one of the consequences of the civil rights movement, you know, whether or not you think it's a good, you know, good outcome is, you know, you can debate that. But one consequence of that is that many Black people became incorporated into what we would call the professional managerial class. And they became a part of the the political class that controls the levers of power in this country. And so if we think about who's the institutions, perhaps most famously will be the Obama becoming the president of the of the most powerful nation in the world. And so Reed makes this case that, you know, anti-racism or what we, this kind of expressive form of anti-racism that doesn't take into account political economy, it's not being captured. He's argued that this is the type of politics that ar- that arose when Black people became integrated into elite spaces. And that became the normative understanding of what anti-racism was. And he makes the case that by saying that this was, let's say, corrupted by neoliberalism kind of misses the point. And rather that, you know, these things are developing as the ideologies of neoliberalism are taking root, largely because Black people, many Black people had class interests for supporting this kind of equal opportunity, diversity and inclusion kind of framework. Now, I think Reed has some, has some really good insights about really thinking about Black class differentiation. And it's really a shame that there isn't, I feel like a lot of people don't want to touch the nuances of class differentiation in the Black community, but it really, really does us a disservice because, you know, Black politics is, if we think about how many Black people there are in America, there are upwards of 50 million Black people in America. So to assume that we all have the same ideas, the same ideologies, the same visions of the world is a, is, a, is not only reductive, but it, it actually is racist by, like, if you think about it in the, the most technical sense. But the reason I kind of I push back against Reed a bit more is because anti-racism isn't new. So anti-racism has been around for centuries. And so to assume that this is just something that is a product product of neoliberalism, you know, for a scholar of black political thought, I think really it, it's I don't want to say it's an affront, but it really does an injustice to freedom movements um, over time. And so I do think that there has always been a strand of let's say, elite politics that has been much more focused on the kind of incorporation and and making sure that, you know, um, institutions are racially represented and things like that. But I'm not willing to concede that that is a product of neoliberalism. I think there is a neoliberal anti-racism that is has its own share of manifestations and particularities. But I think Reed concedes too much 
Um, and I think if we rather think about why it is that these more elite driven forms of anti-racism often take root as opposed to the more radical strands, I think not only do we get a more colorful kind of view of freedom struggles over time, but I think it also helps us to give human beings some degree of agency and just um, in helping us to, you know, to think how people, you know, make make the best of the situations that they have. And But we live in the, you know, we live in an economy that is bourgeois by nature. And so um, I think part of what Reed is contending is right, that there has been a, a very bourgeois-oriented anti-racism, especially over the last half century as questions of political economy have faded from view. But I'm not willing to say that this is purely a result of neoliberalism. Yeah, it's a shame because Reed has so much important analysis, really singular insights. But because he insists on framing anti-racism as inherently neoliberal, which I don't think is just correct, it's not, it's wrong. <laughs> because of that, people can't hear his brilliant critique of racial liberalism. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I have a, a lot of, I'm pretty well read on all of, of Reed's work and like you said, it's a shame because his work, especially in thinking about class differentiation in, in Black politics is, I mean, just indispensable. It's just so rich. It's so historical. Um, so many th- so many things to just chew on. But uh, in recent years, he's been such a... Cranky. Um, <laughs> he has a recent piece where he says, um, I think it's called, the, the title of it is like, Let Me Go Get My Big White Man or, or something like that, uh, which is just, just a scathing polemic of neoliberal anti-racism, which, <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. But, you know, I, I wanted to leave the polemic to read. And there's other people like Catherine Liu who have, who's also been very scathing. Um, but I wanted to... Again, polemics are fun to write and oftentimes fun to read. But to me, as a as a tool of analysis, I think they can be somewhat lacking. So I really wanted to, I, you know, I didn't want to get into the charging people with this or that. I really wanted to understand, um, you know, political behavior. And, and, you know, maybe that's too social scientific of me, but that's kind of what I was getting at there. Yeah. If you've just been reading Adolf Reed through Twitter discourse, uh, stop reading that. Stop reading his blog posts and pick up class notes. Exactly. (laughs) This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin all lowercase.
You write, quote, Under neoliberal capitalism, white PMCs are more likely to engage in anti-racism than are working-class white individuals. But, as we've discussed at length already, the anti-racism of elite white PMCs is typically limited to the symbolic because, materially, white elite PMCs are committed to maintaining materially racist structures because they're structures that reproduced that reproduce the racialized capitalist class divide. But but what about the white working class, which which you, following Martin Luther King and A. Philip Randolph, argue are the, the partners that the black freedom movement really needs? You write, quote, It has become commonplace to treat working white people as irredeemably racist, captured by the racist ideologies that the Republican Party, in particular, though by no means exclusively, has relied upon to build electoral coalitions in the post-civil rights era. But, quote, it is impossible to understand the racial attitudes of the white working class without an account of the structural changes to our political economic order since the late 1960s. Though racism was undoubtedly at play, so too was political economic restructuring. How is white working class racism framed within dominant liberal discourse? And what history and reality does that discourse obscure? And then how, then, does that mystification, which which frames the white working class as irredeemably racist, really as the locus of racism, how does that, in turn, legitimate PMC racial liberalism? So the first thing it does is it it kind of brings us back to the kind of square one. It's just like, well, if this large segment of the population is just so racist, so irredeemably committed to white supremacy, then all we can do is depend on the good white people, so the, the white PMCs, then we know how that's going to turn out. But one thing that I think is often missed in this conversation, again, if you think about the historiography or thinking historically, so one thing that I had in the paper that I ultimately ended up having to cut because of, you know, it was already kind of lengthy. I really squeezed a lot into a very short paper. But one thing that I had in the paper was looking at the the partisan affiliation of people who identified as the white working class. And so I think the general kind of the, the in general parlance, the, the understanding is that in 1968, you had Richard Nixon and you had- um, George Wallace. George Wallace, right. You had George Wallace and they just, you know, they're just so avowedly racist and, you know, white people just, white working class people just really took with this and ran with it. And then that was the racial backlash story. And then we ended up with the modern Republican party. But if you look a little bit closer at these partisan trends, it wasn't as immediate as people would expect. So even in the 72 election and, and even into the, into the 76 and into the 1980 election, there wasn't this mass defection that, that you would expect if it was just a story about racism. And a lot of its middle, a lot of its middle class, um, which Matt Lassiter's work shows, shows really clearly, like that Nixon's, Nixon's appeal around things like busing was, was very much targeted at the white middle class in the New South. Exactly, exactly. And so the white working class just kind of gets scapegoated. And so it really isn't until really until there's this sharp decline or kind of once Reagan really takes the hammer to the union movement, we start to see this real huge mass defection. And I think that's a really important component because then you can really see that this that there's a whole political economic dimension here that just kind of gets left off out of the discussion. And I think it's a really important one because 
there, uh, I believe we've had Paul Schreimer on your, on your show before, and he has a really great paper with um, political scientists at the University of Washington named Jake Grombach. And they show quite convincingly in the paper that, you know, labor organizing has been so key to to creating progressive politics. You write that quote, their paper shows that, quote, union membership moderates white prejudice, heightens class consciousness, and, by extension, prospects for interracial solidarity. In the absence of unions or similar institutions that can articulate a class program around which white workers can coalesce, they are likely to be drawn to racist appeals, particularly those made by Republican elites. So there's a materiality and sociality that unions bring and another material and sociality that emerges in the absence of unions. Exactly. And so I think it's really important to put to really be attuned to that the aspect of the of the of the the story because if you just chalk it all up to white backlash, then there's no politics. There's literally no way to go back and really understand, you know, how institutions matter and not only how they matter, but how integral they are to um, American politics, and especially because we still operate under this this pluralist kind of framework of doing politics, which really relies upon institutions to do much of that brokerage, then it really becomes important to understand the abs- or how institutions matter, and especially how the absence of institutions matter. People are just, you know, floating and not having the opportunity to really interact with with other people and and think about you know their place in. The, in, in the society. And so I recently have been doing quite a bit of reading on the populist movement as, as well. And um, if you haven't read Lawrence Goodwin's book on the populist moment, I would absolutely recommend it to everyone in your audience because it is, um, I mean, I have so many, my mind was blown. But one thing they discuss so much, what he discusses so much in that book is even during the populist movement, there was such an emphasis on the institutionalization of of anti-racism. Of course, he doesn't say that, but you had to couch these ideas. You had to couch race in something that was sociological because most people think of it in natural ways. I mean, that's how racecraft operates because it's just so taken for granted. It's just so naturalized. But if you can construct environments or institutions where people can actually talk to people and get to know people and understand people's their their plights, but also like where they are similar. And I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this. Like none of this is a is a guarantee. I'm not saying that if only we had unions, like we wouldn't have these issues. I mean, there is a very long labor history that shows that there are things that that, that racist um, elements to to labor organizing that is going to happen in a country that is predicated upon racism as one of its you know founding ideologies. But I will make the case that it is a necessary condition, or at least having similar institutions that can do that work. And I think that King and Randolph were adamant about that as well, which is why they were so focused on making sure that labor was such a central component um, of any freedom movement. And again, they weren't sanguine about necessarily unions being the thing that was going to solve all the problems. They didn't think it was a, a silver bullet, but they understood that you had to have some type of institutional mechanism so people could, you know, do the work of being political, which requires talking to people, understanding, and and so forth. Yeah, they didn't believe that you like put a white worker in a union and it's like some sort of like magical device that turns them into having a perfect ideology, but it is a form of organization and sociality that is much more likely to be conducive to anti-racist politics and interracial solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, the, the, on the other hand, we know what happens when 
we depend on just the goodwill of people. Like it's just not, you have to have something that is grounded in something material, something that people can say that despite everything else, I may not agree with, I may not understand your, your, your background. I may not necessarily understand why you use these pronouns. And those are things that, that should be struggled through. And that's part of the, again, going back to the populist movement, because I think it's a really instructive. That's part of what the education was about. It was about helping people to understand all these things that the mainstream media is not going to help them understand because they have an incentive for them not to understand it. But that's really what you have to have. You have to have some of those spaces because um, otherwise, like, People are just unmoored from any type of kind of institutional arrangements that can help them make sense of the world. And so we can imagine how if you don't have anything to fill that void, you know, you can kind of predict where that's going to go. You cite King in terms of this this huge disappointment when the more white elite allies who had been allied with the civil rights movement in principle just sort of faded away when the civil rights movement moved from civic and political rights, winning the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act to struggles around housing, economic, labor, and other forms of more material political economic injustice. And you cite King, quote, when Negroes looked for the second phase, the realization of equality, they found that many of their white allies had quietly disappeared. The Negroes of America had taken the president, the press, and the pulpit at their word when they spoke in broad terms of freedom and justice. But the absence of brutality and unregenerate evil is not the presence of justice. To stay murder is not the same thing as to obtain brotherhood. The word has broken, and the free-running expectations of the Negro crashed into the stone walls of white resistance. And you cite King reflecting on the different sorts of white people in different ways that white people can relate to the black freedom movement. Quote, Within the white majority, there exists a substantial group who cherish democratic principles above privilege and who have demonstrated a will to fight side by side with the Negroes against injustice. Another and more substantial group is composed of those having common needs with the Negro and who will benefit equally with him in the achievement of social progress. How did King differentiate between those who were allied in principle and those who might not yet be aligned in principle but whose material conditions held out the promise of common purpose? To answer this question, I think you have to think about the era in which, or the time in which King is writing. So he's writing, so this is from Where Do We Go From Here, which is the last book that he, that was published before he was assassinated. And so he's writing this book mainly in, the, in 1966, but it comes out in 67. And so he is observing how so many white liberals who had been supportive or even came to the march in Washington for jobs and freedom. I always put at that book that just gets dropped off the end, but it, it's important to say. He's seeing how the support for the more economic plank of the movement was not there, at least not to the extent that it was when they were when black folks were fighting for voting rights or um or, or for uh, access to public accommodations. And so even with the freedom budget, and so I'm going to take a second to talk about the freedom budget because I think it's it's illustrative here. So the freedom budget is published by the A. Philip Randolph Institute um, in 1966. So Bayard Rustin is also a key player here. Um, I wish I could have spent more time talking about him in the paper, but... It was like a 12-page 
paper. I've never seen so much packed into such a tight space. <laughs> <laughs> I really made use of the footnotes because <laughs> that didn't count against my work count. But um, so King is really involved with with the freedom budget and the freedom budget in, in retrospect is it's really a, it's a, it's an astounding document. And I would recommend all your, your readers to I mean, your listeners to read it because it's just the, the the breadth of this document is is crazy. Like I couldn't imagine something like this being proposed um, today. But in the Freedom Budget, again published by the A. Philip Randolph Institute, it's this eighty page or eighty two or so page document that outlines all how inequality or how poverty could be eradicated in the U.S. Um, and the way that they do this is by they hire or not hire, but they contract all of these economists and social scientists to put together a document that crunches the numbers. They even make projections based upon current inflation rates. So that's obviously very timely given where we are politically. And they talk about how guaranteeing a job for everyone will create what they call a, an economic growth dividend. So that the money that will be generated from having more people you know, more tax revenue and so forth will ultimately pay for all of the programs that they're proposing. And so when the Freedom Budget is introduced in 66, they circulate a precie of sorts to each member of, of Congress so they can read it and, and, you know, really see what's going on there. And I mean, a who's, a, a who's who in left or left of center uh, figures are all are signatories on it. So C. Van Woodward, you have Ruby D. and Ossie Davis, you know, King is obviously a signatory. Um, you know, these, these Gunnar Myrdal, like these huge people are all signing on and saying, yes, like this is great social scientific work. It all makes sense. The math is mathing. And at first, the, the reception is actually pretty good. Like the, the New York Times runs, runs an editorial that's pretty receptive to it, you know, saying, you know, there's some things we might have to consider, but by and large, like it's a good work of, uh, of scholarship and, and things like that. But then shortly thereafter, it just kind of, I mean, part of it is because the Johnson administration just had no more appetite for big spending. I mean, between the war and the fact that the, that the war on poverty is not necessarily being received in the way that, that he had hoped, he, they don't really get much support from the presidential administration. And so King is really just frustrated by this whole episode. And so here he's just kind of like, you know, we've exhausted what we can do with elites. Like we have to go back to the ground. And he uses the the freedom budget or what's outlined in the freedom budget is the, the blueprint of sorts for his poor people's campaign, which is the last really big push um, that King embarks upon before he's assassinated. And so when he's organizing and when he's planning the, the, the poor people's campaign, he's focused specifically on creating an interracial coalition, but with what he calls Appalachian whites. So whites, white people who are, you know, poor, working class, but often kind of hidden from view. And so that's where he's really focused on because he's seen... And fairly racialized as other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so King is understanding that there's a limitation to this these elite politics, and that really the only where you're gonna ex- where you're gonna be able to achieve the type of structural change of the sort that he you know he was advocating for up until his death is by creating the type of mass interracial politics that um, that could bring about that change. And so again, I want to hasten to add that he that King never. So he gets often painted as being colorblind or universalist and all these other epithets. But, you know, King understood that white racial prejudice was was a thing. Like he didn't just dismiss it. 
But he also knew how to do math, and he knew that Black people only comprised at the time about 12% of the U.S. population. So even if you, in theory, could organize every single Black person behind this, these ideals, that still wouldn't be enough to generate the type of support that you need, the type of mass movement that you need to really change politics in the way that, that he envisioned. And so part of his desire um, for interracial coalitions was, although he was very principled, I mean, if you read his work, like he's very committed to, you know, to, he has a very humanist ideal, like he believes that everybody should have a place to say, place to stay, a place, you know, food on the table, like he's committed to that. But even morals aside, like he also is very much a strategist and he understands that you had to have the type of critical mass to impose at least some type of push back against elite power because otherwise um, you were just going to be, again, falling back on the same type of elite politics that he had already seen had kind of run up against its limits. You cite King, quote, racism is a tenacious evil, but it is not immutable. Millions of underprivileged whites are in the process of considering the contradiction between segregation and economic progress. White supremacy can feed their egos, but not their stomachs. They will not go hungry or forgo affluent society to remain racially ascendant. The perhaps uh, forgivably misplaced optimism aside, what is this distinction that King points us towards here between productively exploiting the material ideological contradictions inherent to the wages of whiteness versus imploring workers, white workers, to, as we hear all the time, check their white privilege? And what does this distinction reveal about what sort of wages the wages of whiteness are and what those wages reveal about the position of workers racialized as white under racial capitalism? King understood again that racism or racial inequality couldn't be understood without an accounting of political economy. And so there's another interview that he did. I want to say it was in Playboy magazine, which King did so many interviews. Um, but he, you know, he, so he did an interview in Playboy magazine, and, the, and the, the person interviewing him asked whether or not, you know, what was the cause of arrow? Should we be focused on changing the white racial attitudes, getting white people not to be prejudiced? And then once they're no longer prejudiced, then they'll support the types of policies that we hope they would. Or should we be focusing on the structures or the institutions or the laws? And, you know, eventually the, you know, white workers will get information, so to speak. And King says that, you know, we're not really focused on changing the attitudes. Like, we want the attitudes to change. Like, don't get us wrong. We don't want white people to be racist towards us. But that's not how you go about achieving long-lasting change. The way that you go about achieving long-lasting change is by understanding how the wages of whiteness themselves are produced, and they're produced through the structures in which individuals find themselves. So you, you again, going back to the union example, you create educate systems of education within unions to help people understand that, yes, while your racial status may afford you a better wage, all else being equal, compared to many of your Black, um, your fellow Black union members or, or people that you work with, at the end of the day, you're still getting screwed because your wages haven't gone up in X amount of time and your boss is doing everything in, in his or her power to make sure that you don't get anything more from from this from the from this pie. Because those relatively higher but still low wages and whatever sort of social 
status, our compensation for a just dystopian, generally dystopian political economy. Exactly. And King also understood that this whole like zero sum posturing was just, it was a dead end because, you know, you can't just go to people and just like, give us what you have in a, a aggressively consumer society. Like it's just antithetical to, to the, to the way that people understand um, their place in a consumer society. And so again, the way that you, if you want to change the behaviors, you think about the institutions under which are the, the circumstances under which people make sense of the world and how they come to understand what their whiteness even is. So, you know, most people aren't thinking about their whiteness in these, like, I think sometimes the way we talk, discuss whiteness can also be very mechanical. It's just like people aren't stopping and thinking of that, you know, I'm white as a result, like this, if I do this thing, like my privilege is going to be like, you know, two degrees less than it was yesterday. Like, that's not the way that people think about this. This is all a not to get too Marxist here, but it's all dialectic. And so I think that King understood that part of how you changed that relationship was by changing the structures under which these relationships operated. And I don't think he gets enough credit for being so attuned to, to political economy. We tend to think of him as this big sweeping speaker, which he is. But if you go and read, especially his later work, he gets very, very you know, King is very circumspect about how he talks about things, especially early on, you know, when the Red Scare is still kind of a thing. But by the late 60s, he's, I mean, he no holds barred. So um, I really think we should really appreciate the the amount of theorizing that he did about political economy and, and its relationship to, to whiteness. You write, quote, Elites of both parties often frame demands to expand the social welfare state as Pollyannish, fortifying the common-sense interpretation of the United States as a zero-sum society. Consequently, those who allege to be anti-racists, namely white individuals, are expected to give up their privilege, lest they be deemed hypocritical. All of this is transpiring while many, particularly in the PMC, have a real or imagined fear of falling, as Aaron Reich once noted. We've seen this sort of logic reemerge recently in Twitter discourse with posts chiding white people for getting Juneteenth off as a holiday. And in the example you sent me, it was followed by the poster's Venmo handle. What sort of vision of justice is this even? And what sort of theory of change underpins it? I mean, I guess the theory of change is that you'll have more change in your bank account after they send you the Venmo. Like, I don't, I don't envision like how that's going to have any type of structural of change or how it's going to benefit the great masses of Black people. And it's really unfortunate because this discourse dominates so much of the, you know, the, the number of people who actually engage in this type of behavior is probably minuscule. But the way that the media environment is is structured is it gives so much space to the people who engage in this type of, of this type of behavior. So, you know, saying, oh, I remember there was this one piece, I want to say it was an NPR, they had done this interview with a black, I want to say it was a black woman who, after the whole like summer of racial reckoning had posted somewhere, maybe it was on her Facebook, I don't remember, but she essentially saying, you know, if white people really care about black people, they need to pay up. And so she posts like a 
a link to her cash app or something and then wakes up to find that she has like hundreds and hundreds of dollars in a cash app um, <laughs> from, from like random white people who have no connection to her whatsoever. Um, and so they ended up following up with one of, I wish I could find this article, but they ended up following up with one of the white people who had actually cashed after. And they were like, yeah, you know, like, you know, we just felt like this is something we needed to do. Like we wanted to do our part and, um, it's just all so it's first off it's very condescending like I don't know about what I would do if I were in like Target or something and like a white person walks up to me and was just like oh my gosh I'm just gonna give you $50 for everything that you and your people have gone through I'm just like okay <laughs> happy Juneteenth <laughs> right exactly happy Juneteenth like you know that's just what like the color is um, um it's the freedom for me like I just I couldn't imagine anything being more patronizing or condescending. What if they approached you wearing a Kente cloth, Nancy Pelosi style, and kneeled before you while presenting you? I would accept the money only if they kneeled. (laughs) They had to kneel as, like, necessary. (laughs) But, I mean, but yeah, this, I mean, it's it's funny to laugh at, but, you know, there is a way that and there was some very serious discussion about, you know, how Juneteenth isn't for white people, and certain things aren't for, like, white people just need to make space for black people and give stuff, you know, give their money to black people. Like if they really cared about black people, they'd give up their seat. And I just think that that politics, it just, it really, if if we're really serious about creating a world that's better for not just black people, but everybody, then we really have to start thinking about what can we do to be in solidarity with one another in order to impose those types of changes that we want to see? And asking people to cash app you on Juneteenth is not going to lead us to that type of productive politics. But I think really what it, it, what's going on here is I think that there is just a general sense of, and I tweeted about this a while back, I think there's just a general lack of trust. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to be super Sesame Street about this, but you know, we really, solidarity requires trust. You have to believe that people have, you know, good intentions and want to do good things. Like if you don't trust people that you occupy a space with, then, I mean, it makes sense why you would just ask them for the money. Um, but it's not politics. And I think the fact that we treat it as though it is, is, is really unfortunate. And I just, you know, I want us to also really be intentional about now, what do we mean when we say Black freedom? Like, is Black freedom really just making sure that the executives at Goldman Sachs are... are yeah, I'm sorry, I keep picking on Goldman Sachs because ever since Lloyd Blankfein said that Goldman Sachs did the Lord's work after 2007, 2008, Goldman Sachs has been my preferred institution to essentially lay the hammer on when I get annoyed. But um, yeah, I think we really have to think about, you know, what Black freedom is. And, and so there's a political scientist... Um, named Preston Smith, where he kind of creates this typology saying essentially there's two ways forward. There's a racial democracy, which racial democracy just means that, you know, we still have this mass inequality. Capitalism continues just kind of unabated, but we'll just make sure that corporate boardrooms are racially diverse, make sure that you know, if there's going to be gentrification, just make sure that there's enough black people doing some of the gentrification. Any, anywhere there's an injustice happening, just make sure it's racially representative. If we're going to have a prison industrial complex, just make sure that black and white people and everybody else are represented relative to their census numbers. 
Which, I mean, you might think that that is a, not you in particular, Dan, but people might think that that is a, a great, uh, a form of justice or a form of freedom to which we'd aspire. We should aspire, but I don't think it should be. And so I think what he suggests for social democracy, which is, is something that we should all be really striving for. So thinking about how can we create institutions? How can we create social spaces that are predicated upon trust and solidarity and love and willingness to, to work with people, even if you don't understand like why they use this pronoun or why you don't understand, you know, their, their, their heritage or what have you. And so I think that's the only way forward because not only does that racial democracy not grant freedom to the masses of black people, but it also dovetails so nicely with the rights project of using that as a way to, you know, do their whole like woke rampage, which is just ridiculous. But I mean, that's what they're really responding to. And, but it is very, it's funny, but it's also disturbing because this this Venmo me discourse is just the individual iteration of the hire my DEI consultancy at your school or company industry. And that's just the sort of sort of equalization that you're talking out of precarity and oppression, this rounding down to the dystopian least denominator. That's the the ideology of this privatization of racial responsibilities. That's their vision of justice. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't know who, I mean, I know about you, but that doesn't sound like a particularly um, good vision of justice, or at least not one that I want to adhere to. But again, I think part of it is a reflection of kind of where we are. Like people are, I think, I think we're getting into a place where people are starting to understand that I think some of the burgeoning labor organizing is so promising. And, you know, my hope is that that can develop at a faster pace than can some of the reactionary elements that we're seeing right now. But it doesn't help when we have this Venmo discourse kind of dominating the airwaves or, you know, essentially this... One other thing I want to say about the the racial democracy aspect, and this might get me in trouble with some people, but I'm just going to say it anyway, but it's an inherently conservative politics. Like essentially you're you're saying to, to white people that black people are so oppressed and so unwilling or so unable to do anything politically about their situation that we have to depend on your patronage essentially to make a life for ourselves, which if you go back and read anything from Black political thought, even the more conservative elements of Black political thought, I'm thinking um, would have rejected that. Like they didn't want to depend on white people to for their freedom. Like, I mean, they you know some elements of the Black freedom struggle didn't weren't necessarily committed to the idea that white people had to be central to their to their freedom plans. But you know that was a a, a debate that had to be had. But none of them believe that white people were the were the saviors. Um, in fact, most of them rejected that. And the, the one who didn't, to bring it back to Adolf Reed, was Booker T. Washington, which he kind of popularized this whole white patronage politics where we just depend on white people for, you know, them doing right by us, we'll be able to achieve some modicum of freedom. But it's just inherently, I mean, if you're a liberal, it's a very inherently illiberal way of thinking about about society. So I don't really know what type of politics this is. It's like conservative, but it's also kind of reactionary, but it's also illiberal. So I don't really know what the aim is, but I really hope that we can get to a place where politics is about creating solidarity, about creating coalitions. It's about power um, and not about depending on people's patronage to to have some modicum of freedom. 
Yeah, and it all obscures black history because there's been no greater force for social democracy and socialism in the United States than black struggle. And exactly. to, to paraphrase Kambahi, there's no way to make a world a better world for black people without making the world better for everybody. Exactly. And so if we're thinking about how we want to do politics, then the way we do that is by engaging in the types of solidarity building work that's necessary to bring about that change and not just approaching some white person with your Venmo or your cash app or telling them to sell you $50 as a form of reparations, which also I'm like, if this is, we haven't reduced reparations to this, I mean, I'm not that committed to reparations as a political idea, but I thought we could do a little bit better than a $50 cash app. But <laughs> People often say, hey, if these liberal, if these sanctimonious liberal identity politics, if they're alienating white people, then, then who cares? We're not here to worry about white people's fragility. But what if those liberal identity politics are also alienating many people of color, which would be unsurprising given that a dematerialized politics of recognition does nothing for poor and working class black people, which are the vast majority of black people. What are the consequences of this liberal elite anti-racism becoming the popular definition of anti-racism, not just for white liberal elites, but for people more generally? So again, I think what I said earlier was is instructive because most people don't think about these things, but the way that political and economic elites control the discourse, not just the media, but also, you know, the academy where I am is, uh, I mean, we've reproduced a lot of these, you know, common sense understandings of what justice is. And if justice is reduced to, you know, DEI initiatives, then, I mean, if you're a worker at trying to get a, a living wage at insert whatever company here, why do you give it, why do you care about whether or not there's more diversity in the ranks of, of, of the academy? Like it just, there's a disconnect there that doesn't speak at all to the material needs of the large majority of, of people. And so I think it can lend itself very easily to re either reactionary elements. So people buying into the, oh, well, this is just, you know, the woke liberals are just on their thing about diversity and they're mad because so-and-so didn't win an Oscar and Oscar's so white, like, and I mean, I'm not saying those things aren't important. <laughs> I mean, they're not that important to me, but I know they are important to some people. So I'm not trying to be dismissive of them, but where I get annoyed or where I get, um, or where I think it's troublesome is that how that stands in for a more robust discussion of, structural inequality. And so thinking again about what is going on with political economy. And so you can imagine that, you know, people who aren't in these spaces, even if you're not black or white, you might look at this whole discourse and be like, I don't see myself in this at all. And so either you might be more drawn to a more reactionary message, or you might just retreat from, retreat from politics altogether. Like maybe you, I mean, one thing we just don't discuss in this country is that there's so much, I mean, literally a third of the electorate doesn't vote for presidential elections. So, I mean, it's even worse for local elections. And the, I mean, the farther you go down um, the ladder, like the worse the turnout gets. And so, you know, it's not just the reactionary element that we have to be concerned about. It's also like this very widespread like apathy, which I mean, I can't imagine that hearing about how, you know, Oprah is now the highest paid whatever is going to be the thing that incites somebody to get involved in politics. But, you know, I'm, I'm welcome to being proven wrong about, proven wrong about this, but I just think that it's such a, for thinking about how we build the type of politics that King and Randolph and others reminded us about 
then I can't see a path forward by relying on this more racial democratic, the DEI, making sure that white people give up their privilege. I can't imagine how that type of discourse is going to get us there. You cite King, quote, a true alliance is based upon some self-interest of each component group and a common interest into which they merge. For an alliance to have permanence and loyal commitment from various elements, each of them must have a goal from which it benefits and none must have an outlook in basic conflict with the others. And you write that for King, quote, successfully combating race prejudice meant successfully changing the material circumstances in which individuals found themselves. This latter point is critical, for it implies that the only way to reduce race prejudice is to alter the conditions that exacerbate the perpetuation of race prejudice. In other words, the causal pathway is such that material conditions change human practices, which shapes attitudes, not the other way around. This is such an important point, and it has very serious implications. How should we think about movement building and organizing with people who don't yet hold all the positions we think they should? What are the pragmatic implications of this insight that material conditions shape ideology far more than the other way around in terms of how we build a politics that weaves together all of these self-interests into a struggle for common interest? Yeah, so to answer this question, I want to really pull a quote from the Fields' um, where they talk about how ideology isn't just a garment that people pick up and wear. Like it's a response, or ideologies are reproduced, like they're formed, like through material practices and through behaviors and just through the rituals that we engage in in everyday life. And so if it's the case that we need to change material conditions to hopefully change attitudes, then we need to think about like how we can change, again, like the institutions that produce certain understandings of the world and rituals and so forth. Now, there is the question of, well, there are people already out there who harbor these racist attitudes. And so like what to do about them? Like, you know, they're coming, it's not as though they're coming into these, if we're trying to build a movement or what have you, it's not like they're coming in here with a blank slate. So they're going to bring with them their their attitudes about you know black people women people of different sexual orientations or what have you and some might say well how, that might be too much of a barrier to you know actually develop the type of movement that we need and my response to that would be like well if you're only going to interact with people who already have the quote-unquote right attitudes from the outset then I don't see how you can build a movement. <laughs> like you might be able to mobilize people who agree with you, but that's going to have limitations. And so part of what that requires, again, going back to what I said earlier about there being a dearth of trust in, in society, I think part of it begins with the, I begin every, when I meet someone, I usually begin with the assumption that, you know, most people just want, are working hard, trying to make it um, generally good people, love their family, love their kids, what have you. Does that mean I don't believe that they might have viewpoints that I might find, you know, anathema or perhaps kind of distasteful? Of course. I mean, we all, everybody is going to have an opinion or an attitude or a feeling about the world that, you know, somebody else might find, you know, problematic, as the kids say nowadays. And so I get all of that. But again, if we really believe that King is right about this, that 
the only way that you can have durable lasting structural change is by actually changing the the structures in which people find themselves and then hopefully people will start to respond to those new institutional arrangements with a, a change in attitude then i don't know how you can engage in that without allowing people the space to learn and to 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 trust that they are trying to understand or trying to make sense of the world in a new way, but they're just, it's taking them some time. I mean, we've all discussed, we've all had conversations with, let's say, an older uncle or, you know, someone who just says all kind of problematic shit every time at, at Thanksgiving. I mean, we don't just stop, we don't just dismiss them altogether. I mean, you know, maybe if we really want to get them to change their mind, we'll sit down with them like, you know, what's going on? Like, why do you, no, let's really question some of these assumptions, but in a way that is from a place of trust in a place of, I believe that this person has the capacity to do good things. But if you don't think the person has that capacity, then you're not going to give them the type of trust that is required for them to, quote unquote, do the work. We love that phrase. Now, we want people to do the work, but we don't want to give them the, we don't want to trust them with the space to do the, to go through the messiness of doing that work. And so I don't, I think we can't underestimate the importance of trusting people and being able to let people have the space to do that work. Well, Jared Clemens, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Jared Clemens received his PhD in political science from Duke University, where he studied black politics, black political thought, anti-racism, and political economy. He's an incoming research fellow at Princeton University's Center for the Study of Democratic Politics, and next year starts as a professor of political science at Temple University in the great city of Philadelphia. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, life is not determined by consciousness, but consciousness by life. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes mostly every week, but we are on summer schedule through August. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Thea Real Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever else that allows reviews, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you just telling other people to listen to the show, why you like it, why they'll like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs> <laughs>